you know the words. Some of you were doing, some of you were doing that anyway, which is great. That's wonderful. We know this song. Uh, you've got the lyrics on your seat, just by the way. It's an anthem of our age, very clearly. Everyone was um, humming along there. It qualifies. We've all heard it. We've all probably sung it, hummed it, whistled it. Even though the song was written in 1977, that's before I was born, believe it or not. Uh, and it predates YouTube by decades. Even so, it has more than 174 million views on YouTube. That video, which isn't the official video, by the way. Uh, the song has been covered by big names like Robbie Williams, Billy Ocean, Maroon 5. This is a massive song. It's also another simple song with a simple message. We don't have to have any doubt about the message because all three of the little birds tell us, this is my message to you. <laughs> yes, wow. <laughs> we need to hear that message, don't we? It's a message we need to hear. We need to hear that every little thing is going to be all right. Because we worry. We are a worried people. We worry so much because there's so much to worry about. We worry about anything and everything. And recently it's gotten a whole lot worse. The WHO estimated that the global prevalence of anxiety increased by 25% in the first year of the COVID pandemic. 25%. A paper published by Wits University in 2022 shows that roughly one in five South Africans, one in five of us, suffers from anxiety. The causes are both material and relational. Anxiety is more prevalent amongst people who are widowed, divorced, or separated, amongst urban people, amongst unemployed people, amongst people with low levels of educational attainment. That's the research. But you and I don't need Wits University to tell us that we are stressed, do we? The sleepless nights, the high blood pressure, the constant anger simmering just beneath the surface that threatens to boil over at any moment, it's evidence enough. We are a worried people. And so this song is an anthem for our age. The message is, don't worry. Everything's going to be all right. Now, I'm betting there are two kinds of people hearing that message. They are the optimists who buy in. If you're an optimist, you agree. Everything is going to be all right. It is. You might not be able to tell us why, but you believe in your bones that it is. Maybe it's the universe. The universe says everything's going to be all right, and so it is. Maybe it's the power of positive thinking. If we all just believe enough, then everything will be all right. Maybe it's faith in the human spirit. Humans are fundamentally good. And so, of course, in the end, everything is going to be all right. Whatever the reason, you believe it's going to be all right. It's going to be. Those are the optimists. You know who you are. Then there are others, quite a few, I imagine, who are skeptics. You listen to the song, maybe you tap your foot. It's a nice enough song, as songs go. But we're not suggesting it's true, are we? I mean, are you kidding? Three little birds 
Everything's going to be all right because three little birds say so. What kind of fairy tale are you living in? So where do you land? Are you an optimist or are you a skeptic? For my part, I think Bob Marley may be onto something. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Firstly, even though this is a hopeful song, there's a certain realism to it. To sing, everything's going to be all right, is to acknowledge that everything is not all right. And that much we can all agree with. However positive you are, you have to admit something is profoundly wrong. Things are not as they should be. We all know that to be true. That's the first reason I would side with Bob. The other reason, which is infinitely more important, is that another famous man has told us to pay attention to the birds when we are tempted to worry. So the rest of this talk is Bob Marley meets Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that's ever happened in church before. This may be a first. But the link is not that tenuous. It's not that far-fetched. A little while ago when I started thinking about all this, I came out of my office and our church secretary, Helen, asked me if I was all right. I said, Helen, I'm not all right. I am not all right. I'm trying to figure out how to bring Bob Marley and Jesus Christ together in the same sermon without batting an eyelid, without skipping a beat. She said, that's easy. Every little thing is going to be all right. <laughs> Pure genius. That's why we pay her the big money. So if you're ever going to a quiz night and you need someone in the pop music category, just contact the church office. Helen is your lady. Back to Jesus. Let's read what he has to say on the matter. You have it printed for you on your seats. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It seems Bob Marley stole his song from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus also tells us to look at the birds. Jesus also says everything is going to be all right. 
The difference is that he tells us why. Bob never does. And that's a critical difference. That's the difference between blind optimism and real hope. What is the reason Jesus gives? Because you are facing real trials and real struggles. You need to have a firm foundation for your hope. So what is it? Why is everything going to be all right? Jesus' answer? You have a Father in heaven who cares for you. You might say that's just another fairy tale. But is it? I think that we can at least agree it's no more of a fairy tale than a talking universe or the idea that we can bend reality with our positive thinking. It also has this decisive advantage the historical person of Jesus Christ. He actually said these things. Historians agree, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. Now, for you to make up your mind on what he said, you have to make up your mind on him. But before you make up your mind on him, let's be clear on what he's actually saying. He's saying, don't worry. Everything is going to be all right. Why? Because you have a Father in heaven who cares for you. He says there is more to life than material reality. Verse 25, look there. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? There's an unseen reality that we have to take account of. He also says the hour of your death is, is an inevitable certainty. It's an inevitable certainty that no amount of worry can change. Verse 27, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to his life or her life? If we have needs in this life and death is certain, how are we going to stop worrying? We have to look to the reality beyond this life that Jesus is telling us about. We have to look to the one who oversees both life and death. Jesus says, you have a Father in heaven. He knows what you need. He cares for you both in life and in death. He watches over you both in life and in death. And so the remedy to worry is not to chase after the things we are worried about or obsess over them, as we so often do. The remedy is to chase after God. So do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's a weird thing to say. What does he actually mean by that? Jesus is saying, there is something even more important to life than food and drink. Our basic necessities. If we want to stop worrying, that's what we must pursue. That's what we must chase after. That's what we must seek. God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Again, what does he mean by that? To get to an answer, we need the whole book of Matthew. 
not just the very small part that we looked at. Matthew actually wrote a whole book about Jesus, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. So we're going to have to dip into some of it to come to an understanding of this question. What does he mean by God's kingdom and God's righteousness? And the fact that we must seek that first. Well, we've just read a few verses from his most famous sermon. At the start of that sermon, he also says this. Remember, we're thinking about God's righteousness. This is what he says at the start of the sermon. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, a few things to notice about that. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means you don't have it. You have a poverty of righteousness. The same applies to seeking and chasing after. You don't seek and chase after something you already have. That means we don't have righteousness. But we need it. We need it. That's the first thing. We need righteousness, but we don't have it. Secondly, second thing we want to notice, God's blessing falls on those who recognize their need in this area. His blessing comes to those who know they don't have righteousness, but who also know they must have it. They hunger for it. They thirst for it. They seek it. It is they who will be filled. Whatever this righteousness is, it is God's to give. It's his righteousness, and it comes to us by his blessing. Now, it seems in the verse we read earlier that this righteousness and his kingdom, his righteousness and his kingdom are bound up together. They hold together. Again, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Maybe the best way to understand the kingdom is to understand the king. Everything I'm about to say, you can read for yourself in Matthew's gospel, and I encourage you to do that. Don't take my word for it. Go and read Matthew's gospel afterwards, but let me try and summarize what you're going to find there. At the very beginning of the story, Matthew introduces us to Jesus as the king who will save his people from their unrighteousness. His people are in exile. They are alienated from God. Their king is called Jesus because he is God's plan to save them from that alienation. That's what his name actually means. God saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus didn't come to judge his people. He stood with them. He took on their predicament. He took responsibility for their debts. In words that are probably so familiar to us that we've actually forgotten what they mean. He was a friend to sinners. Sinners are just people who are not right with God. Who have no righteousness of their own. Jesus was a friend to people like that. He himself was right with God. He himself was righteousness, but he was baptized. This is the next step in Matthew's story. He was baptized with sinners. He went into the water with those and for those who are not right with God. It was his way of saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. He stood next to them in the river of their guilt and their shame. He'll do the same for you 
if you'll let him. He went into the water for the unrighteous, for those who are at war with God. When he came out of the water, a dove descended, that great symbol of peace. What sort of peace for those who are at war with God? Peace with God. Peace with each other. Peace with the world around us. Peace, peace is the end of worry, the end of anxiety. Peace is things made right again. Peace was somehow wrapped up in this man. After his baptism, he started out on his rescue mission. And he began to speak to people, to make public statements. What was his message? Turn away from your sin, from your rebellion, from your hostility with God, from your unrighteousness. Turn away from all that. Come to me. Follow me. Because the king is here. I am the king of the kingdom. Now, why would they do that? Why would they turn away from their lives and give their allegiance to this king and follow him? Why? What difference could he really make? How exactly was he going to help them? How could he give them the righteousness that they were looking for that they didn't have? How was he going to fix what was broken? How was he going to put them right with God again? How was he going to repair all the damage and deal with everything that's wrong with this world? How? By the end of Matthew's book, we have an answer. The night before he was executed, before he was murdered by the government... He had a meal with his closest followers, and Matthew describes that meal for us in some detail. This is what happened. I'm reading from his book. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus was using this meal as a teaching aid to show how he was going to save his people. He was giving his body and his blood for their sin. He was giving his righteousness for their unrighteousness. Peter was at that meal. And later he described what happened like this. Christ Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Back to Bob Molly. Bob tells us things are not all right. But don't worry, they're going to be all right. We know they're not all right. Even the optimists amongst us know that. We know something is profoundly wrong. Jesus tells us what that something is. He says, do you know what the problem is? You. You are the problem. Hang on. That can't be good for my self-esteem. Maybe so. 
but it's true. Forget the chaos out there. Let's look at the chaos in our own lives for a moment. How much have you contributed? Fights with your spouse, with your children, with your siblings. How much of it is your own pride or selfishness? That conflict at work, if you are honest with yourself, is it really all her fault? What about the guilt and regret you carry? Now, not all of it is legitimate, I'm sure. But often, guilt is a clear indicator that we have done something wrong. The problem is not just out there. The problem is in you and in me. Maybe you're not convinced. Let me try again. I think that we can all agree people are the problem. The reason things are not as they should be is people. People are the problem. And you can see people are the problem. Even perhaps especially in the people closest to you, the people you love. You can see the problem in them. You can see the character flaws, the cowardice, the selfishness, the greed, the anger. You can see where they fall short. My friend, if people are the problem, are you the only exception? Are you the only one? Do you really believe that other people look at you and say, wow, he's the only one I know without any issues? The problem is with us. Let me ask. I'll try again. Let me ask. When do you hate traffic? Okay, obviously always. But when specifically? What time of the day are you doing the hating? When you are in your car on the road. You see the irony? It is very possible to hate traffic and be traffic at the same time. You are the problem. I am the problem. Jesus helps us to see that the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. And the problem has a root cause. We are part of the problem because we live as if we don't have a Father in heaven who loves us. That's how we live. We like the spoiled brat who slams the door of his father's house in his father's face And then wheel spins out of his father's driveway in a car that his father bought him and speeds off to spend his father's money on his own extravagant lifestyle. To every message his father sends, pleading with him to come home, he responds with an out-of-office reply that says, don't tell me what to do. That's one way to ignore our father's love. The other way is to work in the family business but treat it like it's any other job. And treat the owner like a boss instead of a father. A boss you don't really like. Who better pay you what he owes you or he's going to meet you in labor court. Jesus says we have a father in heaven who made us, who cares for us, who loves us. 
we treat him as if he doesn't exist. Or we try and manipulate him for our own purposes. We can be wild and reckless or we can be morally strict and disciplined. Both are rejections of his love. You know, sinners can be bad people or sinners can be good people. A sinner is someone who rejects or ignores the fact that he or she has a father in heaven who loves them. That's the heart of our unrighteousness. That is why things are not the way they should be. That sickness in our most fundamental relationship is what poisons everything else. That's why everything else around us is bent or twisted or corrupted or, or just slightly off. Have you noticed? Things can be beautiful, wonderful, good, but they're always just slightly off. Just not quite what they could be or should be. The problem is in us. The solution is in him. Jesus loved his father. Jesus obeyed his father, even when his father asked him to come and save us. Even when it meant dying in our place, paying our debts, exchanging his perfect righteousness for the filth of our unrighteousness. story doesn't end there because this problem that's in us ends in death. Death is our biggest existential crisis. Death is our greatest anxiety, our deepest fear. It's the root of all other worry. The thing we fear most is death. Every other fear is just a tributary running into that raging torrent of a river called death. But Jesus came to solve our problem, not at the surface level, but all the way down. And so he came to deal with death. Jesus died, but his story doesn't end in death. Matthew tells us how his story ends. Because of his righteousness, Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, our problem has its roots in our unrighteous rejection of God. Death is just a symptom of that problem, a symptom of that unrighteousness. Because Jesus was righteous, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him. Death had no rights over him. Jesus defeated death. Bob Marley was 32 years old when he got cancer under his toenail. In four years, the cancer spread to his brain. And so he was literally riddled with cancer from bottom to top and top to bottom. Uh, During those four years, while the cancer was spreading, he was still touring, no doubt singing his smash hit, Three Little Birds, Don't Worry About a Thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. He was singing it with his lips, but I wonder what was going on in his heart when he sang that song. Did he believe what he was singing, knowing that death was at his door? How? How was everything going to be all right for Bob himself? 
Jesus says, you have a father in heaven who loves you. When you cared nothing for him, he cared enough for you to send you his one and only beloved son to suffer and to die in your place. He takes your death to give you life. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. You have no righteousness. And you belong outside the kingdom. Your father gives you the righteousness you need. He gives you the keys to the kingdom because he gives you the king. You have a father who loves you. How do you know? Look at the cross of Christ. That's how you know. For sure. That is the firm foundation of your hope. If he loved you like that. To save you from death. You can be sure he cares for the details of your life. You don't have to worry. You have a father in heaven who loves you. Do you hear that? I mean, you're hearing it, but are you hearing it? Perhaps you'll hear it in the words of another song. It's, I'm, sh- I'm sure it's a song you know. But these words speak to us. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. And life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. If you want peace, if you want rest, if you desperately want things to be right with your Father in heaven who loves you, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and you can know for sure that every little thing is going to be all right. Let the birds remind you of him. We close with another famous, famous artist, probably the most famous artist who's ever lived. He wrestled with these very same questions near the end of his life. I'm talking about Michelangelo. We know him as the artist who painted uh, the Sistine Chapel and the Last Judgment. This is what he wrote as he faced his own death. The course of my life has now brought me through a stormy sea in a frail ship to the common port where landing we account for every deed, wretched or holy, so that now I clearly see how wrong the fond illusion was that made art my idol and my king, leading me to want what harmed me. My amorous fancies, once foolish and happy, what sense have they now that I approach two deaths, the first of which I am sure, the second threatening. Let neither painting nor carving any longer calm. My soul turns to that 
divine love that to embrace us opened his arms upon the cross. Facing death and searching for how everything is going to be all right, Michelangelo realized that he had been serving the wrong king his whole life. He realized that peace couldn't be found in painting or carving. He spent his whole life trying. And so he turned from all that and he ran into the open arms of Jesus, his true king. I hope you will do the same today. Today. Because tomorrow never comes. And I want to give you the opportunity right now this morning as you sit here. If you want to have peace, if you want King Jesus and his righteousness, all you have to do is ask. It's all you have to do. The Father gives you his Son as a gift of love. There are no strings attached. He doesn't wait for you to get yourself right. He knows you can't. That's the whole point. He knows you can't get yourself right. It's why Jesus had to come. So if you want to be right with your father, if you want the gift of his son, all you have to do is ask. You just pray these words that I'm about to pray after me. They are just words that are accepting the invitation. The invitation to come home. Let's pray. You pray this quietly in your own heart after me if you want to accept the invitation to come home. Dear Father in heaven, I am sick with worry. I long to be at peace. I hunger and thirst to be right with you. I want the king and I want his righteousness. I know now he has died so that I can live. I accept the gift. Please forgive me. Please can I come home. Please can I be your child. I can only ask because of King Jesus. Please hear my prayer. Amen.